welcome to E-Commerce Innovators, a podcast that brings together the brightest minds in the industry to explore innovative strategies and trends in global e-commerce. Our host is John LeBaron, Chief Revenue Officer at Pattern, the premier partner for global e-commerce acceleration. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for joining today. My name is John LeBaron. I am the Chief Revenue Officer here at Pattern. And we're really excited about our guest to join us today. This is Wiley Robinson. He is the CEO and co-founder of Rumpel and based out of Portland, Oregon. And welcome to the show today. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So Wiley, tell us a little bit about, for those that don't know anything about it, tell us about Rumpel and how you came up as a co-founder with the idea. Sure. So I'll try not to make this too long-winded, but Rumpel is a company whose mission is to introduce the world to better blankets. Broadly speaking, we see blankets as a category that have been around forever that have really not undergone any sort of upgrades from like a material perspective or just like a general sort of brand presentation perspective. So we're taking that category and trying to elevate it and sort of bring it into the modern era from a materials perspective and also from a brand presentation perspective. That's great. And when did you start the company and kind of what were the origins and where are you currently at in the journey? Yeah. So I'll quickly hit on the founder story. I started the company with a friend of mine in uh, 2013. We were on a ski trip in California and sleeping in our van and woke up one morning and the van was completely frozen. Car wouldn't turn over and we were, we were trapped outside a cell reception and really like couldn't walk into town or get any help. So we had to just sit in the car and wait for somebody to show up. And during that time, we climbed into our sleeping bags and started talking about how our sleeping bags were actually really way more effective than the blankets on our beds back home. We just loved the material, didn't pick up any odor. You really don't have to wash sleeping bags. They're super packable. They have kind of like this nice technical feeling to them. And eventually when we got out of there, we decided to make sleeping bag blankets, which is pretty much what we called them for quite a while. And that was sort of the end of the idea. We had just essentially a square piece of textile that was sewn up with some synthetic insulation and just like a sleeping bag. A bunch of our friends thought that this was an interesting idea and that they might be interested in a product like this. So we decided we'll do a Kickstarter and see if other people want to do this. And the Kickstarter turned out to be really successful. We raised about a quarter million dollars in 30 days. And that kind of told us that we've stumbled on this cool idea. And that's where we sort of evolved the idea about like the blanket category and how it needs an upgrade and what Rumpel is here to sort of do to the category. So that's the origin story. So we officially incorporated in March of 2014. Yeah, that's so great. And I mean, what is your background? So what made you feel emboldened to be able to just create a brand new company, even though you stumbled upon this great idea? Have you always been an entrepreneur? Like, tell us a little bit about that and uh, the founder story from that angle in terms of like, let's go. I haven't been an entrepreneur, so I've never started another business, but I have been pretty close to brand design. Right before Rumpel, I was working at an agency called Landor Associates. It's uh, one of the largest global branding agencies in the world. I think they have like 24, 25 offices globally. And it's very, very comprehensive creative role. So I was working more specifically in the brand and environments group. So like trade shows, retail design, physical spatial design for brands. But it was a really cross-functional agency in that I would sit in on strategy meetings, naming meetings, identity, logo, graphics, like the full suite of what a brand should represent. And so I had a lot of exposure to brand design, full comprehensive 360 brand design, but it never applied it to my own company. So I definitely had experience sort of seeing the evolution of like what it takes to make a really compelling and interesting company, but I had never done it myself. Yeah. Well, I'd say it's a pretty solid uh, first pass at starting here based on everything that I can see and what I've heard. So 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting from a prototype kind of concepting perspective that you talked about earlier in terms of the Kickstarter. Is that really the first foray? It sounds like once you kind of have the idea, you kind of got some initial whatever product and prototype in place. Was that really the next step, the Kickstarter to kind of validate? Or did you try to get in any brick and mortar or start a .com or anything like that? Yeah, there was no attempt at all to make any sales before Kickstarter. In fact, we only had one prototype that we did our Kickstarter with. So it would have been totally impossible to actually sell product to consumers, at least in a direct way. So yeah, the, the Kickstarter was totally like the proof of concept, market validation, also a lot of learnings. One of the things that I think is really beneficial about Kickstarter is, one, you get kind of like your seed money to make your company, but you also just get so much information from the community about what would make the product better or how you should evolve it or really anything like that. So. Yeah, that was ground zero for us. And we had one prototype. That's what we shot our video with. And we did some Photoshopping, obviously, to sort of like mock up new colorways and things that we wanted to have on the finished product. But generally speaking, yeah, that was it. That's awesome. So anything that strikes you or comes to mind as you think about some of the feedback that you got from early customers or folks on Kickstarter that comes to mind that you would be willing to share? Yeah, I mean, this is really specific to our product, but we originally started with the blanket sized for beds. So we had twin, queen, king size. We were really marketing it as this kind of like camping product. So we made a quick, pretty quick shift to actually changing sizing to sort of mirror tent footprints. So we've got one person and two person and uh, kind of abandoned the throw size, which we had that was sort of like our smallest, most entry level size fairly quickly from consumer feedback. Yeah, what a great example. I like that. So I guess you get some level of influx of funding to kind of perpetuate the initial style, et cetera, with some updates, it sounds like. Tell us a little bit more about along that journey, how everything else evolved. And I have so many questions. As you look at your portfolio, so to speak, today, you branched out in a lot of different ways. And I guess from a student of startups, I'd love to just understand some of the sequencing that ended up happening? Did you start the D2C? Did you get into brick and mortar? Did you start to expand the line? Like, Help us understand how the beast kind of grew after the Kickstarter, if that's okay. Yeah, a lot of different avenues I could go here, I think. Let's start first with the product. So, And this is actually a good dovetail into what we talked about very briefly before we started recording, but just the divergence between me and my co-founder, which eventually happened. So when we started the company, we had created this blanket product, but we thought that we could actually apply our thought process to a number of other home goods. And we viewed sort of the blanket as just one proof point of how a whole suite of home goods really hadn't undergone any sort of material innovation in like hundreds of years. So we thought that we could take some of the same thinking that we applied to the blanket and apply this to like blankets, robes, slippers, towels, bedding, even furniture to some extent. You can imagine a couch that's upholstered in DWR coated material and doesn't get stained and doesn't absorb any moisture or anything like that. So we had this like big grand idea for what we called active homeware. We actually trademarked that term. And the idea was like you go into a bed, bath and beyond of the future and you've got your homeware category and that's like your cottons and your linens and your like low tech textiles. And then you've got your active homeware and these are just borrowing technologies from outdoor gear, athletic apparel, etc. It still is a really interesting idea to me, but it was a humongous idea that required just a ton of different product development avenues, probably like a huge team to really like execute on this concept. So pretty early on, our blanket sales continued to just go up. And meanwhile, my co-founder was like still really passionate about this idea of active homeware. And 
I kind of thought like, well, we're a blanket company. <laughs> we kind of got to get on board with the fact that we're a blanket company here and we need to focus the business, focus our energy, focus our resources. So that was one of the big learnings about how we were going to grow the company is extreme focus on the category of blankets. That was, I would say, a really pivotal moment just in terms of like how the product has evolved. You asked sort of what have been the big shifts in the business from the early days. And I would say on the product side, deciding to focus on blankets was a really paramount decision that was made fairly early on. Ultimately, just to sort of fast forward a few months, ultimately, my co-founder's passion for this active homework concept differed from my passion for this continued focus and doubling down on blankets. That's sort of what led us to part ways. But that's just like one example of how a decision was made early on that really set the course for the company. There's a million other things too. I could go down sort of every like department within the company and say that we made these key decisions. You asked about distribution. I have a whole separate story on that that we could get into if you'd like. But we actually started as really like an omni-channel business. And we were willing to sell it to anybody that would take us. What we realized is that wholesale requires a huge amount of backend support. And we just didn't have that. We didn't have the ability to service the needs of a wholesale channel. And so we went into wholesale. I think we opened maybe 20 or 30 accounts or something fairly quickly and had to immediately pull the plug on all of them with the exception of REI and Huckberry at the time. So we had just gotten into REI and we knew that was really exciting. So we decided to focus our efforts just on those two accounts and really didn't expand again into wholesale until like three, four years in. And then we actually brought in just one internal wholesale manager and he managed a very, very small assortment of kind of core, most important accounts for us. And it's since grown really dramatically. We have a pretty large wholesale team now, actually, and it represents about 40, 45% of our business. So we're now fully omni-channel, but we kind of false started a little bit in the beginning there, retooled, went back to just ETC, and then kind of slower rolled into wholesale. That's really interesting. And so maybe as part of that kind of distribution thought process, because you obviously had D2C kind of humming along, and obviously there's still product innovation happening, etc. You, at some point, kind of got into marketplaces. And I don't know all the marketplaces you sell, but Amazon specifically here in the US. And you kind of maybe sell yourself, your own third-party seller on that front. Was that kind of a dovetail strategy with D2C? Did you think about that channel differently? I guess, what was the digital strategy as a whole? So I would say that our entire channel diversification roadmap has really been driven actually by trying to get on the production calendar that is required of other channels. We started as a Kickstarter company, right? Like where we had one prototype that was enough to shoot photos. And then we pretty much sold direct to customer, but it was direct customer built to order. So we sold direct to the customer, we had all these orders in, and then we had to go build it. So we actually delivered that product you know, six months after an order was placed by an individual customer. This is like the polar opposite end of the operational calendar of what it takes to be in wholesale. And so with wholesale, it's taken us five, six years to kind of like actually work into a process where we're ready 16, 18 months before selling season for that particular channel. So like we're working on spring 23 right now with our product department and our reps are out right now selling fall 22. So it's taken us a long time, honestly, to finally get ahead of that cycle. And I'm getting to your question here about how distribution sort of evolved. And it really had to do with like what we could service. We could service direct pretty quickly because we were able to get product landed. We had it in our warehouse. We could sell it to customers. Then we kind of opened up a little bit into Amazon because we could peel off certain inventories that were 
slow moving on our website or for a variety of other reasons, and we can move those through Amazon. We originally started with Amazon. It's almost like a little bit of a clearance channel. We ended up realizing that was not the best strategy for that channel, but that's kind of how it started. It was like a byproduct of what our intent was with TTC. And then we kind of added channels in order after that. And it really had to do with like how we could service those channels. So it's taken us a long time to start from that Kickstarter operational calendar and then grow into the business that can actually support wholesale correctly. Yeah, uh, I think it's so many learnings there. And again, I have to give you kudos really because you're basically walking into the business not as an entrepreneur, not as a logistics and wholesaling and ordering and supply chain type of professional. But I think what I... First thing I notice when kind of looking at the D2C channel is just how different it felt, right? Like from a... I've never felt the blankets themselves, but just from a branding perspective, which is kind of sounds like more of your forte and what you're really, really great at. The colors, the palettes, the style, even the typography felt like a really, to your point, earlier point, branded experience and a different experience than you get in a fairly sleepy category. So maybe before we go too far down the path, let me just go back and let's go back to the product again. So how did you think about that? I, this feels like the type of category, and I don't know it well enough, where other people are going to see and try to catch on and steal ideas and say, oh, we can do this. But I would say a lot of your IP is locked up potentially in the technology you use in the blankets themselves, but for sure in the brand and the design, the experience, the type of customers, the type of resonance that you create with those customers and the authenticity that you bring. And I'm sure even your roots in Kickstarter kind of help with that piece of it. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you stay ahead of the curve from a competitive landscape type of perspective? What is the inspiration for some of the designs and things that you guys kind of, how do you stay authentic to your kind of core customer? I know there's that's a lot like 10 questions in one, but maybe you can speak to some of that. <laughs> we talk about exactly this all the time at Rumble. And going back to our mission, our mission is to introduce the world to better blankets. What is the better blanket, right? Like how do we make that sort of an objective criteria? And for us, there's really two things. The first is material innovation. So blankets are a category that have been around for tens of thousands of years, actually. Like some of the first textiles ever discovered are in fact blankets. And despite that, really, there's been almost no material innovation in the category. But we've seen this whole amazing textile revolution happen in outdoor gear, athletic apparel. We've seen like the emergence of athleisure as a multi-billion dollar everyday fashion category. And like none of that performance technology has flown through into bedding or homeware in general, but certainly not blankets. So that's sort of the first thing we try to do is elevate the category from a material perspective. And that's very on the nose. We talk about that front and center with our customers. It's like right there on our homepage. And we talk about that fairly freely, excuse me. We actually don't own a lot of IP there at all. We do have one proprietary installation called Nanoloft, which we developed, but our best selling product is the original puffy blanket. And that's just like a recycled 30D ripstop polyester, very, very common material. It's a siliconized hollow fiber insulation inside there, also very common material. So the second piece of what we're saying makes Rumpel special and really what we view as making the blanket better is introducing this emotional connection to the customer for what we also believe is the first time in the category. One of my favorite questions to ask people is how many blankets do you have in your household? And people count them up and they realize, wow, I probably have 15, 20 blankets in my house when I think about that. And then the follow-up question I ask is, okay, name one brand. And here in the Pacific Northwest, you know, we get Pendleton. There's a couple of brands people can rally off, but Generally speaking, people have a much harder time identifying, call it three, four brands within the space that kind of like focus on the space. Yeah. 
So for us, the idea of introducing emotional connection is really like the secret sauce behind the company. And we do that through continued investment in our brand. On the ESG side, we're a certified B Corp. We're 100% climate neutral. So we offset all of our carbon every year, 1% for the planet. So we give back 1% of all sales to environmental causes. And then we also develop a lot of really interesting, compelling partnerships that people find as reasons to buy. So partnerships with artists, partnerships with other brands. We have a really interesting artist program called the RAD program. It's the Rumble Artist Division. And these are just like more means for actually connecting with consumers on a more emotional level. It's a really great category for doing exactly that because the way you use the product is already highly emotional. Like you wrap up in a blanket, it's warm and comfortable and cozy and safe and all these things. It's even like this sort of like childhood thing there where you're thinking about the safety blanket you had as a little kid around with you. So there's this great opportunity to really connect with consumers on this emotional level through things like great storytelling, ESG initiatives, and just continued investment in our brand. So that's really where the IP of Rumble lies, is what we do on the brand side. The product itself and the technology is very subject to parity. In fact, there's a lot out there already. So that's kind of like what we view as the better blanket, is one that's got a material innovation story and also an emotional connection story. Cool. One of the certified B Corps near us is a company called Cotopaxi. I'm sure you're probably familiar with them. I think a lot of just with the color palettes and even the founding story in some ways, the way that they got kicked off and their brand experience, et cetera. They this huge thing called Questival, which was getting outdoors and celebrating that piece of it. So a lot of parallels there. I guess the other kind of question that I had was really around the innovation in the product. So we talked about this or alluded to it a little bit earlier, right? So you now actually have expounded a little bit larger. And I don't know how much of the business it represents. I'm guessing not a huge piece quite yet, but I'm seeing everything from canned blankets to ponchos to other stuff. So you can talk about that. The other thing that kind of struck me is maybe some of the licensing deals that you've created from a sports kind of side of things. So maybe you could speak to either one of those, but how is the product diversification strategy evolved over time and where are things panning out and where are things, you know, starting to get interesting for you guys on either of those fronts? Sure. Yeah. So the blanket category is very broad. We view it as very broad at least. And it can include blankets that you'd have in the back of your car for an emergency all the way to the one on your bed that you're never going to take outside. So our goal ultimately is to really satisfy that entire category. Blankets, again, that you are kind of just like knock around, you bring them to the dog park, and then ones that are like very nice elevated. We have this beautiful wool blanket we just introduced a couple months ago. And we kind of want everything in between. Where we've seen the business really continue to take off is just in that core original product, the original puppy. It's the first product we ever made. And that's really where the vast majority of the business goes. And so the way that we continue to expand that and bring in more repeat rate for our consumers and sell more quantity into wholesalers, et cetera, is to really diversify from a print perspective. So I would consider licensing sort of like a print diversification there, as well as introducing new prints, new styles, the RAD program I mentioned. So really, we're seeing a lot of the business still gravitate in that original puppy product. But we have little extensions here and there, like the wool product, like the poncho, that are just kind of an arm's length away adjacencies to that core of the business. The can blankets, honestly, those are just like, <laughs> those were swag items we made for a trade show that ended up being really popular. So we have those in line now. But then we've got towels, which are sort of an adjacent extension. But really, the core of the business is in blankets and specifically that original puffy blanket. Yeah, that's great. And do you anticipate you might 
kind of keep going down the path of the licensing, obviously on the sports side, you can imagine any other, I mean, whatever, Disney and Marvel and all these other kind of yep. areas of, of potential, or is that more of a foot in the water and, and you're going to stay close to the core? Like, what does that look like, I guess, in on the innovation roadmap? Absolutely going to be expanding licensing. In fact, we just hired a channel manager for the licensing channel. It's been so successful for us with NFL. So yeah, actively pursuing additional leagues, actively pursuing other franchises, and other licensing properties like the ones you mentioned. And we see that as, again, like another way to connect with the consumer. People are so passionate about their team or their school or their favorite movie or their favorite character, whatever that may be. That's just another way for us to really connect with that consumer. So definitely expanding licensing. Interesting. Well, I think it kind of brings it full circle in a way too. You talked about that nostalgia from growing up. I mean, again, if you start younger with smaller kids at their rumble blanket, and then that becomes, to your point earlier, the brand that you recognize, the brand you seek after if you're going to upgrade or go to college or whatever, buy your next camping blanket or you graduate, I think that that becomes super interesting. And I've even... I'm shocked how many people even in the office, maybe it's because Utah's cold during such <laughs> many parts of the year, but how many people actually bring blankets to the office that they're sitting with a blanket or even on flights too. You see that a lot. People yeah. bring blankets and I love that almost the compression aspect of your blankets too and easily kind of the tote that it comes with, et cetera. I think that's super fascinating. I mentioned that uh, we do intend to expand the category to satisfy more use cases, but with that original puppy specifically, we see new consumers and new sales verticals that we're continuing to expand to. So you mentioned travel. We have a travel size of that product that works really well to just kind of stash in the side pocket of your backpack. I would consider licensing like a new vertical within that franchise. And so we're going to continue to expand into some of those new demographics and new consumers that can use the exact same product, but for their particular use case. Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, in interviewing a number of different executives for this podcast, one thing that perennially arises is how innovation kind of dovetails with challenges and hurdles and obstacles and forcing you to think differently about the company or about the product or about the business model and kind of getting to these steps, nirvanas or inspiration epiphany moments. Any of those that come to mind for you as you've kind of been through the ringer and getting this from zero to one and beyond, any breakthroughs that ended up happening or any major obstacles that just kind of threw you for the ringer? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2019, actually, the process started a lot earlier than this, but in fall of 2019, we rolled out an entirely revamped product line. We transitioned all of our product over to post-consumer recycled content. Prior to that, it was virgin content. We felt that the product quality was compromised at the time if we were to go with recycled material, excuse me. But during 2018, we spent a lot of time countersourcing recycled content and testing and found a good solution to actually transition our entire product line over to recycled. And so we were really excited about this. We thought it was going to kind of double down on our environmental focus as a brand and really drive more volume and more affinity for the brand. So we made that change just like abruptly like that and decided to change everything over to post-consumer recycled. And what ended up happening is the market was just still totally flooded with virgin product. And so our retailers had big issues where they were like, this is old product. We don't want it anymore. You need to buy it back or we need to put it on discount. We did a little bit of both of those things, depending on the retailer. Either way, though, the marketplace was just flooded with off-price. And so we found ourselves in this really tough position where not only do we order a ton of the new product, 
But we also just had this major pricing issue throughout digitally, also in accounts. We were sort of like forced to just wait it out. Honestly, that was like the only way we could do it. In some cases, we bought product back and sort of moved it through quiet clearance channels. But generally speaking, the, the big impact effort that we had made to, to transition everything to post-consumer cycle didn't really matter like we thought it was going to. Now that that's all cleared out and the, the marketplace is clean and it's all post-consumer recycled, we're in a great spot where we, I would say, a leader in sort of like the CSG movement to move to recycled materials. But for a while there, for at least a half a year, a full season, we had this like disparity happening between virgin and recycled product. And frankly, like the consumer, if they see something that's listed for 60 bucks or something that's 100 bucks, that's essentially the same. They're probably not going to be compelled to buy the recycled one over the virgin one. So we were just selling tons of off-price product instead of this new product we had. And all the new inventory we brought in just didn't move for months. So that was like one of the bigger challenges we faced with the strategic directive to transition everything to post-consumer and have more of a sustainability overlay on the brand and on the product and everything. And it just was not, it was met with major headwinds. Did anything come about because of that from an innovation standpoint, either in the way that you marketed and the distribution strategy and the e-commerce strategy? It sounds like a lot of turbulence and headwinds happen within the wholesale channel on that front. But anything that comes to mind in the way that you fundamentally... It sounds like you waited out the storm, so to speak, as well. But anything else that kind of came as a result or different ideas besides the scar tissue that was developed during that time? I would say that this is something we've migrated toward over time, but this event with the new post-consumer product really sort of sped that up and highlighted how important it was. My co-founder and I, when we started the business, we're both very like kind of gearhead, tech-heavy type people where we care about materials on like sort of the fiber level and warmth ratings and like strength ratings. And it's just like we almost built the blanket to be shopped for like a pair of skis. Really sort of specific information for like the gearhead. And what we found is our consumers are just not that hardcore. They're, they're much more casual. They don't care as much about technical specifications. When we did the transition to post-consumer, we were still telling like a pretty technical story to sort of like highlight that recycled story through technical lens. And that's just not really what people are buying the product for. They're buying it for the function. They're buying it for how it looks. And so we really dialed back the sort of technical language and overlay when marketing the product. That was migration and evolution that was happening before the PCR rollout, but it was really heightened by the PCR rollout for us. So that's something that I think was a beneficial byproduct of that event. Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of different questions we can go here on this next section. And again, some of it relates to the innovation. Some of it touches on some of the things we've already talked about. So maybe we'll turn this into a little bit of a choose your own adventure and you can go down the path that makes the most sense. One is you talked about your early learnings on the Amazon channel as almost like a clearance or slow moving product to put it on there and kind of go, you said that wasn't an ideal strategy and maybe that's evolved. I'd love to hear how that's evolved. Second one really is around partnerships. We talked a lot about licensing and the diversification, but I noticed on some of your blankets, you partnered as Olukai or someone like that, that you do like maybe exclusive products with or or joint products. So I don't know, either one of those, we'll probably circle back to both of them, but either on the Amazon, or, or even on the kind of joint venture or at least uh, joint partnership type of product development. How are those looking and, and where are you innovating on those fronts? Sure. So I'll answer the Amazon one first and I'll try to stay kind of high level on this. Our original strategy with Amazon was really a clearance channel, as I mentioned. And we've since shifted to almost the exact opposite where it's actually more of a core product strategy. 
So now rather than selling like the one-off green one that doesn't have many units left and just throwing up 15 wow. units or something on Amazon, we're putting the black, the blue, the most popular colorways on there that we always have in stock because yeah. we actually don't want those product pages to ever go out of stock. That really apparently reduces their ability to bubble up on search rankings and gain reviews and just like gain product page popularity. So we've really shifted the, the strategy completely to actually putting our most popular products on Amazon. That's kind of high level how the shift has taken place. And yeah, I guess I don't really need to elaborate more than that. That's just what we're doing now is putting top SKUs on there. Before you go down to the partnership level or branded, co-branded type stuff, but one of the... And this dovetails back with the original launch of the business from a Kickstarter perspective. But one of the things that you get a lot of with both Amazon and I'm sure your D2C is just those reviews, right? Mm -hmm. More that you build up your detail pages, the more reviews you're getting. And you guys... I was looking to your point, some of your kind of more niche or newer products don't have a ton of reviews, but some of those core products do have a ton of reviews or at least way more than the other products. What sort of feedback are you getting from there? Is that influencing the product roadmap? Do you find the Amazon consumer is fundamentally different than your D2C consumer in terms of the way that they do review the product? But what does that look like as you kind of get more omni-channel from a digital perspective? Yeah, I mean, reviews are really important. And I think that unfortunately, or, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, actually, it kind of like is a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you've got a really core product and you're selling the most of that product, you're going to be driving the most reviews to that product. And yeah. thus, then that product continues to fuel the whole business where more people are going to gravitate towards it because it's got the most reviews. So I don't think we're doing anything that's really different than anyone else other than just having prompts after purchase for people to make reviews. We use Yotpo as a lot of other people do. And yeah, it's, it's something that we definitely invest in. We try to get as many reviews as we can, but it's tough to get reviews on those relatively unreviewed products if they're just not moving as quickly as the core products. Yeah, absolutely. And any major takeaways or learnings that you're having from the way people are reviewing those products that, that are, again, either aha moments or things you didn't consider before? Yeah. So the number one place that people use our original puffy blanket, which is largely marketed as an outdoor blanket, is at home on the couch. And this, I think, speaks to our customer. You know, Our customer is somebody that fancies themselves outdoorsy, but maybe isn't necessarily doing hardcore outdoor things every weekend. So it's somebody that might be wearing like a puffy jacket to do grocery shopping. They prefer the feeling of the technical materials over a cotton sweatshirt. It was interesting to see that as sort of the clear winner for where the product is used the most. And that came through reviews. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I, yeah. You know, our producer that set this up, Emily, we we're having an offsite at our cabin and she grabbed a blanket. She said, I put a very high premium on comfort. And this is like my jam is just like being comfortable. And I can't remember the word that she used. She probably jump in and correct me on this, but... Is like cozy or something like that. And so I, I see a lot of similarity there with what you just described for sure. Yeah. She's outdoorsy, but I can imagine her using your blanket at almost any opportunity indoors as well. There's a really interesting sort of familiarity with those materials. If you've spent any time at all in a sleeping bag or in a down jacket, you know how cozy and warm you feel within seconds of, getting, of having the material to touch your skin. And so when you touch a rumple blanket, it's almost instant. And it's this instant familiarity that you have with the product and you sort of know that you're going to have this like warm, cozy, comfortable experience with it. We stumbled upon something there inadvertently. And that's kind of like part of the stickiness of, I think, what works really well for us. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, you feel like you're home, right? So maybe that leads to that second question. Obviously, there's a lot of outdoor companies, a lot of people in the space, a lot of people that have a lot of goodwill and familiarity with their customers. Talk to us about that product. I don't know what you want to call it, co-branded or co-marketed or and where that lies in terms of innovating your own company as well as what the roadmap looks like. Yeah. So for us, collaborations are a huge part of what we do and how we continue to grow. We have to be careful actually of not putting too much emphasis on the collaborations because we don't want to just be growing on the backs of other brands or artists or people that we work with. We want to make sure we're still selling lots of blue one-person rumples in addition to all these interesting collaborations we're doing. But for us, what's been most successful is just really driving volume of collaborations. It's a great opportunity to send an email out. It's a great opportunity to communicate with your audience. And uh, for us, that comes in the form of volume. We've had a number of collaborations that have gone really well and have sold out immediately and driven a lot of volume and revenue. But I think that the long arc of why we do collaborations would really speak to just doing lots and, and continuing to have that sort of steady cadence of communications about new partners we're working with. It both validates the product in terms of if this is a, a well-respected brand like Olakai, the one you mentioned, it sort of tells their consumers that we are good enough to work with them. And for a new brand like Rumpel, it's really important to hit that with as many new brand or as many legacy brands as you can, because it sort of opens up your aperture for who you can speak to, new customers you can speak to that are brought in through the lens of a brand that they already love and trust and respect. It's a really important part of our strategy. We happen to have a product that lends itself very well to collaboration. One area I would say of development and innovation at Rumble that we've really continued to evolve is just the printing technology. So we can print just tax sharp imagery onto our products. It's not technology we own, but we've done a really good job sourcing the best supply chain to be able to do that. And so if you're a brand that has sort of a specific look and feel and graphic style, you can very easily translate that style over to a rough product. So it allows us like a, just a really good platform to collaborate on top of. We don't have to invent new products from the ground up every single time. We can bring in art and aesthetics from other brands and apply them to our product. Well, Wiley, I could interview you forever. There's so many awesome little segues that we could duck into, but I want to be conscious of your time and that of our listeners as well. Maybe as we wrap up here, one question... I, I have that I'm sure a lot of people listening would have as well is just what sort of advice would you have or give to other folks or entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs or whatever it is that have an innovative idea and they, they want to take it to the next level? What sort of advice would you have for them? I mean, this is so cliche, but honestly, the best way to get in there and, and learn and figure out what works for you is to just try. I had no entrepreneurial experience before Rumple. And kind of just diving in and figuring it out is the way that I develop my skill set. I think that that's probably the case for anybody that's got an idea. There's, there's always some degree of fear of the unknown. I think that it's a little better, honestly, to not know too much before you start a business. That's not to say that if you're an MBA or something and you have like some idea of what it takes to get into business, that you're not going to be better equipped to do so. You probably will be. But I think that some paralysis actually can really inhibit you. And paralysis by knowing too much can really inhibit you. So I would say just dive in there, give it a go. If you don't get the outcome you wanted, it's still not a failure by any means. It's a learning opportunity. And again, I know that's cliche, but it's so true. I think that people just need to keep that in mind when they think about starting a business. Yeah, absolutely. Well, 
again, I really appreciate your time today. And knowing that you're a skier, next time you're in Utah, feel free to stop by and yeah. we'll hook you up in a nicer place than uh, sitting in the van. But <laughs> Yeah, I love the van, you know. Still take the van out. Van life. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. I really appreciate you sharing your story and your insights with us. And I hope we get to see you again soon. All right. Thanks, John. Thank you. All right. Take care.